Good evening, TDN listeners, and welcome to this week's interview with your host and guide, Anthony Drago. It's always a pleasure to have you, and I want to say a special welcome to you, my regular listeners. I always tell you that I appreciate you coming every Wednesday to spend an hour or so with us. I know there's a lot of stuff that's competing for your attention, and I appreciate you making this speaking interview a part of your schedule. If tonight is the first time that you're listening to this speaking interview, welcome. I hope to turn you, convert you into a regular listener as well. Uh, special listeners to those who are listening to us on the island of Anguilla, beautiful island of Anguilla, because we have one of your special ladies, your state's lady, on with me tonight as, as my special guest. So I know we have a few additional listeners from Anguilla. So special welcome to you. Special welcome to those of you who are listening from the nature island of Dominica, uh, particularly on um, DG um, Channel 59, uh, the RVR Jams, uh, carrying this speaking interview live. So tonight I have a very special guest. I'm very excited tonight to have as my guest uh, a, a young lady from Anguilla, Miss Quincia Gums Marie, uh, did what so many people wish they could do. She ran for elections in Anguilla and she was successful. So she is part of the new government. And so I thought I would bring her on to talk to her uh, get get to know her uh, uh, a little bit and introduce her to you because I'm very excited about young people in politics. I'm very excited about women in politics. I'm very excited about brave and courageous people who seem to have the best of their people in mind run for office. And I'm, I'm super excited when they actually win because we we need a new we need a changing of the guard uh although because the caribbean seem to have been stuck in place at best if not uh, reversing moving in the wrong direction and so we need a change of guards to usher the caribbean uh, back into um contention for for a place where caribbean people can 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 leave and at a place where Caribbean people don't have, like me, don't have to migrate to another country to make a, a decent living, that we can stay right there and make a decent living. And so join me tonight uh, to wish Quincia a very warm welcome to TVN Radio, TVN TV, uh, and this weekend interview in particular. Welcome, Quincia. Hi, Anthony. Good afternoon. A pleasant good afternoon to you and your radio listeners. A pleasant good afternoon to my family and friends in Dominica and um, those in Angola who are tuning in. It's a pleasure to be here. And I would want to apologize in advance for my shaking video as um, I'm using my phone, which I, sh which I should not be using. So I want to apologize to your viewers for any sort of changes or glitches with the, uh, with the visuals. <laughs> No, that's fine. And actually, it reminds me to remind the listeners because we usually, until recently, we were just on radio, tvnradio.net. Uh, but we also currently are on tvntv.net as well. 
so so you can watch us you can actually see us on tv and tv and i appreciate you uh, making time of what i'm sure is a busy schedule to to come on today to to say hello and i hear you say that you have family in dominica we will talk about that um but for now uh, i want you to, to just take a few minutes and talk to the audience let them know who you are uh, tell them give them a little bit of your background I am Quincia Gums Marie. I am the Parliament Secretary for Economic Development, Natural Resources, Tourism, and IT or Innovation. And it's a big portfolio. I am one of seven of the members who were successful in the Angola Progressive Movement under the leadership of Dr. Ellis Lorenzo Webster. We started our campaign last year in November. I decided two weeks before that, well, no, we started in October, but for the first time, we had at-large offerings. So what that meant is that while you had your district candidates, you could have voted for up to four persons island-wide. And there were 22 persons running island-wide, but you only had four slots available. Uh, out of those four slots, my team won three of the four, and the incumbents at the time won one. And it was an ex it was an exciting uh, and challenging process, and we were successful. And that was something that was very, you know, it was it was it was a very good moment for us and a very good moment for youth in Angola. And I'm sure we'll get to that more further on into the interview. As it relates to me, uh, outside of politics, I previously before entering into politics, I was a business development manager for Fair Play Management Services, which is a family owned. Uh, business, a group of about seven businesses where we do insurance, we do retail, we do real estate and other things like that. So my job was basically to modernize the businesses and bring them into the 21st century uh, because my father would have been here for about 30 years. So it, there was need for some fresh energy and fresh ideas and we did that and we had lots of success in doing so. I always had conversations of political importance. My father ran for politics when I was quite young. So from a young age, I was always involved in political conversations. I didn't think I would have uh, run at the age of 27, because I'm 27 now. I'm actually the youngest member um, in the government. Uh, it was something that was important to me to step up now. And part of my identity is always rec recognizing even though it's sometimes uncomfortable and it may seem daunting to raise your hand when it's necessary because even if I didn't win, I wanted history to show that we at this juncture in our Angola's history saw a need for change and would be part of even ushering in or challenging what was already existing. Awesome. Um, so you, you, you entered your family business and you said that you your objective or your function there was to bring it in the 21st century, in, introduce innovation and and to, to move it forward. And it seems as though, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that is probably exactly what is needed at the at at national level in Anguilla. <laughs> That's exactly what is needed. Um, fresh world ideas from persons who recognize the world that we see on the outside is it can happen here and in what happens is that sometimes when you become comfortable you think that all what we are is all what we can be 
So being part of challenging that narrative and, and challenging the electorate to think more about what we can be and reimagine what Angola is was really right up my alley as a business development manager. That's what I do, you know, for the last four years. That's what I've been doing. Right. That, uh, so so you, you're able to trans translate um, the experience that you had in yes. Anguilla innovating your business. And um, now you're hoping to achieve the same thing at it from a government perspective. Uh, what is your what is your background, your training, say, um, education wise, and and so on? What are you professionally? So I went to university in in Toronto at the University mm -hmm. of Ryerson, and I finished my degree in a Bachelor of Commerce, focusing on tourism and hospitality with a minor in HR. So what I realized halfway through, or actually at the beginning of my final years, I didn't really love hospitality in the way that I thought I did when I entered in, but I really, really, really loved policy. So what I focused in at the end of my, um, my final year was policy. So all my courses were in policy. So technically I would have had a, a focus on policy. Yeah, so so that so in that sense, you you're very well geared uh, for your role, and you yes. seem very well suited for for the function of your ministry, because you have hospitality, which is like the main bread and butter of Anguilla. Anguilla is a huge um, tourist destination. Uh, you know, as, as I'm saying that, if you don't mind, I want to backtrack a little bit and have you introduce Anguilla, because we have we have audience from from all over. And while I am so behaving so familiar with Anguilla, there may be some persons who may not be as familiar. So can you situate Anguilla for them? Um, well, Anguilla is the most northern Caribbean, uh, Leeward Island. And we are situated between the BVI and St. Martin, being our closest neighbors. We are 35 square miles, so very small and we have a population of about 1500 people our natural resource and our main resource would be our people and our beaches we have 33 beaches and we've actually just won for the fourth time in a row best caribbean island um the, the award and my comrade hayden hughes who's the minister of works and tourism will be accepting that award this evening so that's something that we're, we're excited for we do also recognize the role of the previous administration in doing so we have no problem with telling them that they've done a good job. So as we accept that, we will be recognizing their work for that as well. Uh, part of what we offer is our foods. We have been recognized for the, our culinary contribution to the Caribbean. We are, because we, we have such an interesting uh, relationship with the ocean, fish is our main dish, uh, fish and rice and peas. And we've always found unique ways in presenting uh, marine dishes and it's, it's part of our entire experience. Everyone who comes here boasts about their having the best lobster they've had in, in their lifetime in Angola. Uh, we have, as it relates to, let's say, education, we have seven primary schools and one main high school, so that's different for most Caribbean islands. 
where everybody would come to the same school and it's a comprehensive system. So everybody comes in, everybody goes out. And part of our mandate also is improving our offerings there to ensure that every Angolan has an opportunity to have a meaningful role and a meaningful impact in life and get a, get a chance to excel. Our, our, we are known mostly for our beaches, our white sand, pristine beaches. If you Google Angola, I think that's the first thing you will see. We are really, we are really blessed with um, some wonderful beaches and also some wonderful underground, uh, underwater life. We don't have much hills and mountains. So like in Dominica, um, you'd be very surprised to see how flat we are. And um, so that we don't have things like rivers and, and um, black sand beaches and you know, different things like that. Just to make the contrast between Angola and Dominica. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And while our lands are not very um, fertile as it is in Dominica, we are known for our greens and, and, and tubes, potato and such which is also part of our industry as well. Awesome. That's, yeah, that's what, and I, I will tell you that um, I'm always promoting Anguilla. I always say to folks, you know, one of the, um, the places, the best beaches in the world is Anguilla. I, I remember uh, walking on the beach and it's, the sand is so white and the sun is so brilliant that you must wear sunglasses yes. um, <laughs> on, on, on there. And so I, I always, I'm always, saying to folks, if you want to go to a really Caribbean, Caribbean vacation, you should definitely make Anguilla um, part of your itinerary. It, it's different from Dominica. Dominica is more ecotourism, hiking, and that, but it's a different product. Uh, so let's come back now. So uh, your, you, you won the, your seat in the, in the last election, and you've been assigned uh, a portfolio, a ministry. So we're just starting off. And so your dreams have not been, have not taken any heat so far, I hope, just a week. <laughs> <laughs> so let's assume that your dreams are still fresh. And so you, you, you're casting your eyes forward and you have elections every five years. Yes. So five years from now, what would you like to be able to, to tell your constituents, to tell the people of Anguilla that you, in, in terms of your capacity as a minister and your, and your government ha, have achieved in the five years since you've been in office? So we have a lot of great plans, but I think one of the things that we were very cautious of going into this is for, um, about over-promising. Over what mm. we did is realize that there are some good structure that exists in Angola in terms of uh, ground level, but they would need some work. And that mm -hmm. comes, again, directly into what I'm accustomed to doing, as in business development. So we have things like our post office, which is there, the, 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 the possibilities there are endless, but they would have needed assistance in becoming more efficient and, and also coming into the 21st century. So what we did as a party is look at inefficient uh, bodies and government and try, and try to find ways to make it more efficient. But then we also brought on new ideas, such as entering into the blue economy and ensuring that we use our 200 nautical miles, which is very, it's very um, endless possibilities there. And our leader of the party is a doctor. So as it relates to healthcare and reforming what we have currently, those are some of the things that are on our, on our plate. Individually, however, 
one of the things that I would hope to say that we've started and completed and done a great job in is actually taking full advantage of our 200 nautical miles and diversifying our economy. Currently, our economy is a mono economy that focuses primarily on tourism, but we do have a lot of opportunity and means to grow as it relates to establishing our marine resources, having a fish processing plant, selling licenses, exporting fish on a national level, and tapping into the US and the, and the European markets, which are you know, grand, and also using our food security platforms to once again lead off into proper health. We have a very, statistically speaking, our, our nation is not very healthy. So one of, the, one of the ways we also want to address that is when we are doing more fishing and, and, and getting more into fisheries is to educate our people on how to eat better, how to um, find better ways to eat, how to do more backyard gardening. And those are things that we would want to celebrate at the end of five years. The good thing is that coming into this administration and COVID, people are realizing the importance of developing alternative industries because as you can imagine with tourism being down and it being our main economy the government's coffers are taking a terrible hit and the people are unemployed so the the interest is there the need is there so we don't want to lose this moment where people are focused on what else is possible for Anguilla and we ran a campaign on Anguilla reimagined so it's not like we are hoping to abandon tourism, which is some person's fear, which we will never do. But it's important to ensure that when one thing gets hit, another thing can stand strong. And so we are really about building strong alternatives for our economy. Yeah, diversification is what I hear you say. Right. Don't have all your eggs in one basket. And actually, my next question to you had to do with COVID and, and COVID-19 and the coronavirus, because we see what COVID has done to tourism. And, and as you said, Anguilla, which is almost um, totally dependent on tourism, would have been particularly hit. So I was going to ask you about about the impact of, of that and how how you, your your government plans to approach that that challenge. And then you you partially answered it because you you express it almost as an opportunity. So so I I want you to take a little a bit of time and expand on that somewhat. Um, to, to, because I think it's something that's applicable anywhere. COVID has forced us to, to change our lives in a way that would have been difficult to do if we were also expected to carry on as normal. And so because it has made us stay home and put so, brought so many things to a halt. So speak to that somewhat, the opportunity that exists because of that, the challenges and, and how, how um, you all, you and, and your government um, will approach that? Well, as you can imagine, the greatest challenge would be money because, mm -hmm. you know, we would be receiving a great amount of payments to our treasury from accommodation tax. And with the hotels being closed, a, a great portion of our income is, is affected because of it. But my business and my professional mantra has always been the obstacle is the way. And it's no different as it relates to COVID and my approach and my government's approach in, in addressing COVID. The reality is, is that 
moments like these expose our weaknesses and we have two options whether we're going to sit with our our hands in our and our heads in our hands and say you know what will we do for the until it's over or we look at the opportunities so we realize that we have to work through our economic our, our economic challenges and we're working with Britain to ensure that they assist us with meeting our recurrent expenditure but on the other hand we have to take advantage of the fact that people are realizing the importance of technology the fact that our classrooms have to be ready to move from class to cloud with, within the blink of an eye uh, our vulnerability as a country our supply chains uh, diversification of our economy and our readiness as a country to deal with external shocks because the reality is while covid did what it did when you look back at arma although it's two different monsters arma did arma did something similar to us where it's and if you can think of it in the maria context in dominica it would have halted tourism in the same way it would have heightened the need for an unemployment benefit fund which we don't have and is we recognize in that while we become climate resistant it also strengthens our resiliencies as it relates to any other thing that can happen to our country and so as we develop we are realizing that we have to develop in such a way that tries to mitigate risks and we are seeing we 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 are learning right now how we can prevent we've learned from arma how we can develop in a way that mitigates the risk for for a hurricane we never realize of you know two years two, two two to three years later you'd be doing the same thing as it relates to a pandemic what is important is how we reemerge from this and if we don't reemerge stronger we are missing an opportunity because we'd have to wait for the next thing to happen to understand our vulnerabilities so what we are really doing is using this as a learning process and and to grow from it so we take we're taking the lessons we are not very happy it happened but the reality is it's here we don't know when it will leave and and that's why i'm saying the importance of diversifying our economy where you ordinarily would have had pushback and concerns now the entire country is on the same page as it relates to the need for fisheries development agricultural develop development boat building industries to be developed because these are things that have have existed in angola for quite a long time but they haven't been tapped into because they have been ignored because tourism is big tourism is flashy it's beautiful you can see the um, the benefits right away you can see people on our shores you can see money in the bank and so we are taking these lessons and learning how to really guard ourselves uh, on the educational frontier we are realizing that it's important to produce well now we're realizing but it's reinforcing the knowledge that it is important to to produce digital illiterate students because what some persons were mistaken as digital literacy was persons having a com comfort with navigating their phones or navigating an iPad but that's completely different when you have to use it for educational purposes so now there's a further push in ensuring that our students are more digital illiterate and a further push in ensuring that our businesses can interact with government from an online platform in the blink of an eye and so it's important lessons on versatility and how we grow out there we also now have an opportunity to have a, a update our pandemic plans as you can imagine whatever pandemic plans you would have had would have been from the 19 early 1900s so now we have an opportunity to see 
whether it's a foodborne illness or another pandemic, we have now a set of standards that we can depend on and we can go into. So I, I, I don't want to sound as if I'm excited about COVID. No one is. But it, it gives us an opportunity to look at what else is, is possible. And the benefit that we've had as, as a party is that we ran on the idea of Angola Reimagined. And you might hear me say that a couple of times because we truly believe in, 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 in that phrase where we can reimagine what is possible. So right now, we're in a, in a position where we have to reimagine if we want to survive. And it is also given us an opportunity for global integ uh, regional integration, which some persons probably wouldn't have thought of at the, uh, at the onset of COVID-19. But we are all in this together. We're not just in it as Anguillians, but Dominicans, Bayesians, Ketitians, Antiguans. We're all in it together. So we're, the knowledge sharing is also creating an opportunity for greater bonds and, and better reaction and support in the future. Is Anguilla part of the um, organization of Eastern Caribbean states? Well, we, are, we have observer status or associated status. So we're not fully there, but we still, in times of crisis, it's like we are full members. Okay. Um, I know you are still uh, associated um, politically with Britain. Is there an independent movement in Anguilla? And if there is not, is that is that any part of your party's platform? It is not an immediate part of our party's platform, but we do live by the philosophy that any country should want to obtain self-sufficiency. And as we look into economic development, these are ways that we can become so. And we're, we're not in having a conversation, so you know you won't hear from me five years. Well, you might, who knows? But I don't think you will hear from me five years from today and say, hey, we're independent. But we want to ensure that we have strong foundations if we ever do go that route for generations to come to say that, you know, the, their predecessors left something strong that they can build on and say, thank you, Britain, for the years of service. Thank you for all of you've done, but we can do it on our own now. We want to ensure that whatever we do is sustainable and can be built upon. And it, 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 it's even reflected in the way that we've shared our portfolios. Never before has um, Angola merged economic development with natural resources. The reality is that we want to ensure that whatever we do is sustainable because we don't want to undermine future Angolans. And if we undermine them in the way we develop, we're undermining their ability to become self-sufficient and thus undermining their ability to become independent. But it's definitely not a, a conversation that is, that is on the forefront of our minds. So what is the official... Um what is the official relationship between Anguilla and Britain? Well, we are British overseas territories, so it means that we have a governor who has some place a particular function in our constitution of oversight and good governance. And um, as it relates to times of crisis, we realize that Britain is, has been an asset to us in the, in the past. After the passing of Irma, they have more or less replaced all, uh, you know, if not most of our schools, repaired them, assisted with, um, with having a guard here and who, who went around uh, fixing roofs and, you know, helping persons with top holding and, you know, doing, doing initiatives to assist our rebound from armor. And it's the same here with COVID. We are currently in the process of signing an MOU. Uh, we are not in favor of all of the conditions attached to it, but we do realize that 
it could have been a loan and it's a grant. So there are some benefits that we do enjoy with being a British Overseas Territory. Right. And so you have a governor general mm -hmm. and then you have a premier. So we have a governor and a premier, a uh -huh. deputy governor who works out of the governor's office and an attorney general who, you know, looks at the legal side and tries to uphold the law on that end as well. So the, 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 the governor is elected or is he um, appointed? No, he is appointed by the UK and he is also uh, over the public service. So in other countries where ministers decide hiring and firing and, and um, the HR part of government, this is under the governor's purview, um, particularly okay. the deputy governor who's answerable to the governor. And the deputy governor is also appointed. Yes, but he applies for the job. The deputy governor is oh, okay. ordinarily an Anguillian. So okay. we have an Anguillian deputy governor. Although it, it can switch, but the, the point is to have somebody who has some sort of cultural knowledge of the, of the, of the landscape, mm -hmm. who assists mm -hmm. the governor in, in maneuvering in that direction. Right. And then, the, and then so you have the premier who does the day-to-day -day running of the, of the countries up here. Right. But the, but the governor, the deputy governor is in charge of the civil, of the civil right. service. Right. Oh. So then the governor is in charge of our military, our borders, uh, mm -hmm. and things that will directly implicate uh, Britain, more or less. Uh, so, right. for example, for funding purposes, we can't go out there and just get funding, we have to go through the British to, to ensure that they sign off on what funding we may want to have internationally, because it would implicate them as we are answerable to, to us and they are the final power. We are answerable so, to them and they are the final power, sorry. Final power, right. Um, so a scenario, for example, a, a developer sends in a proposal to, to build an airport, a big resort or something. It goes through whether it's your ministry or whoever. Um, before approval is given, does that then have to go through the governor for for final oversight, or how does that work? So, depending on what it is, that would go through what we call EXCO, which is the Executive Council, which is made mm -hmm. up of all the ministers, the governor, the AG, um, okay. Attorney General, and and the DG, as well as Palsex if they are needed. Um, permanent mm -hmm. sex, sorry, if they're needed. And th we decide then. So if there's any pushback or any concern from the British side through the governor, we would have that conversation then. Oh, so he's part of that, of that committee. Right. Okay, okay. So, with, as you try to diversify the economy, and you, you speak about agriculture, I, I know you said that your peas is one of your main crops and, and, and it gets consumed as part of your cuisine. In terms of the people of Anguilla and, and their aspirations to, to earn their living and that sort of thing, how is your government going to, how do you envisage transitioning folks from um, a primarily service economy where, you know, it's, it's a cleaner job, for, for want of a better word. It, it has a, a certain connotation. Uh, do, you, do you think Anguillans are, are ready 
for that transition into maybe more um, hands hands on. Uh, um, you know what I'm asking? A blue blue yeah. collar type um, activity that would that would that would be necessary to support the diversification that you were seeking to um, implement. Well, that's a really good question, Anthony. And the and the reality is, I kind of go back to COVID, is that persons are recognizing the importance of uh, diversification. They're calling for it, so there's a willingness, and it is also up to us to push the culture. We have some persons right now with the capacity to to produce enough tomatoes and cucumbers for our market. They don't, but they can. And what they are looking for is government push and, and support. What is very important is that, and some governments really don't realize, realize it, is that governments shape the culture. And depending on how we talk about it, depending on how we treat the existing persons in our industry, we send a message loud and clear that we'll create an interest that might have been deterred based on behavior. As a, as a student of HR, one of the important things we learn whenever there's a, a major change, if people aren't part of the process, you'll have operational resistance. And so what we have been doing is, throughout our campaign process, program, um, process, sorry, is speaking to people about the possibilities and showing them where they can come in. Because it's not always just, you know, going in the dirt and, and building and, 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 and hoeing right. and, and, and farming. It's also about marketing. It's right. also about creating linkages, exporting if you can, because St. Martin and us, we share a very close relationship and there are opportunities there as, as well as um, the BVI. So there are a lot of opportunities in farming that may not necessarily lead you to the ground. And there's also the opportunities that lead you there. We have to ensure that for the work that's put in there, how we treat the existing farmers and their needs and their aspirations, we ensure to support them and bring them along on a journey. Because what has been happening is that we've been so service-centered and focused is that we haven't been looking at the alternatives as viable alternatives, and thus we haven't been treating them that way. So no concessions for, for things for planting. We have a water crisis as it relates to the cost of water in Anguilla. But there are a lot of persons who come up with, with innovative ways to water their crops. and they may need to bring in a few things to, to get that done, but there's no support on the ministerial level. What is, what is missing? And I'm not campaigning because we're already in, but the reality is that what we've found is that what is missing is political will. The people are willing. And the worst thing that we can do to them now is make them wait for a longer time. Our campaign slogan was change can't wait. And we realize the urgency of now. Now that persons are interested if we ignore them and push them aside for some point into the future we'll be doing them a disservice so while we do that equal push we're really responding to a call we really are so i like i like when you say that government shape the culture that that is very true because so many times when we talk about the question that i just asked you so many times um folks come back and say we're not supposed to wait for the government to do it for us, we can do it for ourselves and, and so on. And while, while it is true that persons have to take initiative, um, it is so true that the government shifts the culture. And, and so let's go back, let's go political for a little bit. And I, I want you to 
tell me in your perspective what made the difference why why was an incumbent government who had every excuse in the world they had Irma, they had the global economic crisis they had corona and in the middle of a pandemic when everybody wants to go back to normal uh, your party the angular progressive movement was able to convince Anguillans for a change. What what are maybe the one or two main issues or ideas or prom not promises but visions that you were able to share with the folks that you think made the difference um, to tip the scale in your direction? I think there was generally an, a, a, just a want for change and fresh faces and fresh perspectives, and us. Just with the announcement of my candidacy, I will share a very real story with you. Once I announced, uh, someone had never met him before, called me. He was like, he said, I need to speak to you right now. Do you have the time? And I said, no, I didn't want to have to call you back. So when I got home, I called him back and he said, do you know that I, I was about to sell my home? This was the day after I announced that I was running with my um, leader. The party already had their district candidates but they did not have their island-wide candidates as yet. And he said, I was like, where are you going to sell your home? He said, because I planned, I had some money aside in the bank. I was planning on buying a ticket for me and my wife and my child. And I was planning on moving to England. But just to see that you all have the audacity to stand up and raise your hand and say, consider me, was enough for me to use that money elsewhere. So what I did instead is I painted my house and I bought a weed eater and I cleaned up the yard and I'm, and I'm staying. And if you all win, I'm going to stay. The reality is, is that we, we were stuck in a cycle of recycled politicians. Uh, Deanne Kentish Rogers, who's similar in age as me, 27, just a few months older, she was able to unseat uh, the premier, Victor Banks, who had a 40-year career on her first run. Because people were ready for some change. We, we, we were stuck in a cycle of the dated ideas, the dated approach, and also this idea that Angola had already reached its peak, which we will never accept and no generation should accept. The purpose of generations before is to build and for us to continue building. And, and that was a, a major part. On the other hand, the second thing I would say is like I said, um, being a student of HR, people must be part of the process. And this, the previous administration excluded people from the process. So we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know anything about ourselves. So even as a business person, you can't make proper decisions because there was little to no communication. Uh, when things got rough, you were just basically told to sit down and wait. Uh, one of the worst things our, the premier at the time said was, like it or lump it. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. That, you know, things like that. Um, they, we are real people with real lives, real sacrifices. And you would realize that the people are willing to go through it with you so long as you make them feel like they're part of the process. Because what happens is once you start to exclude people, they start to divorce themselves from their land. So we had a mass exodus of persons. And every, every, tragedy would bring our population lower because we had a we had more or less economic refugees who would just be going to different countries and search for a better life and if they were being 
spoken to about their realities, if they, was being, if they were being spoken to about when, you know, they can expect the light of the tunnel to, to start to appear, at the end of the tunnel to start to appear, they would have stuck it out with them. But we had no idea about ourselves. And I would say that even before I decided to run, I was not planning on even voting. Because I felt like if we're going to get the same old, same old, I don't want to be part of, I'm not going to go in the line just to be told, like, I'll lump it again in my life. I don't, I don't care about it. I'm just going to mind my business. And I realized that all of the reasons why myself and other persons did not want to vote is why we needed to vote, is why we needed changes in the system. And so the root of the apathy that existed long before us joining the system was actually what carried us through to the end of the campaign. I mean, we, we were through a lot. We went through COVID. So we went to the beginning of our campaign. We took a break for Christmas. We got back on, as soon as we got back on to our campaign, we got through COVID. And you would imagine that a, a new company would a new party, sorry, would lose its momentum of that time. But we just, we continued to grow in momentum because we kept the communication going. The people are just thirsty. We, they know, they know that things aren't easy right now. In fact, what we, we face with the MOU that I, I, I talked about earlier is that on our coming to office, we realized that there were only two weeks worth of cash left in the reserves. And you can imagine that revelation in a new party um, with an entirely new slate of candidates. It stops you in your tracks. You know, you come off, you know, enjoying the, you know, the room. <laughs> what happened? Uh, we seem to have lost uh, connection with um, Quincy. If you join me late, my, my guest tonight on this. Yes, I'm here. Back. You're still here. Okay, let's go. You can talk. You can hear I'm here, you. but I think. Yeah. You, 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 so. You, you, you can continue. Yeah, I got a call. Like I told you, I was hoping it wouldn't happen, but um, I'm still here okay. in audio. But yeah, upon our arrival to the office, we had two weeks left of cash. And the reality was, if you don't sign this MOU, whether you like the, the conditions or not, you will be insolvent, your constitution will be abandoned, and the British, the British will come in and take over, similar to what happened in Turks and Caicos a few years ago. And something of that magnitude should have been shared with the people prior to elections, because <laughs> COVID happened. So people wouldn't even blame it 100% on the government, although when you look at their past behaviors, you, you technically can. But we, they would have read it out with, with, with the government, but there was little to no communication. And so now we are in a position where we are going to have to share that unfortunate news. In fact, you probably heard it before some persons because it will come out tomorrow, uh, where we are at financially as a country and the challenges and, and the, the, the great amount of challenges that sit before us. But what you want, especially in a time like this, is a government that will tell you the truth and will stand with you and share information, be transparent and, and, and be honest in, in where we are at and what is possible. And so that's what I think brought us over uh, and, and, and ushered, in, ushered us into, into government is because there was a strong appetite for change. It was... Either we get something new or we're not going out to vote at all. So the fact that we were able to inspire persons, and I would say that our young slate of candidates did help to re-inspire younger persons in Angola who would have not, you know, ordinarily not been interested in, in political campaigns, who would have not come out to meetings, who would have not been listening to debates. So people my age are realizing that, hey, you know, 
my peer, someone who I went to school with, is in this race. It, what does it mean for me? How can I get involved in my own way? So we, our, our, our campaign was really about reigniting hope in Angola. And that's exactly what we did. Right. So I, um, I'm not sure if you can, if you need to restart your camera or, or what, but we'll continue talking and, and between you and, and our producer, Sam, I'm sure we'll get you back in, okay. in video. For, for folks who joined us after we started, uh, my guest tonight on this weekend interview is Ms. Quincia Gomes-Marie, and she recently won a, her seat uh, in the Anguillan election and is now part of parliament. And so I invited her on here so that we could get a better sense um, from her. We could get a better sense as to, to what, what the aspirations of her party is and what hopes and visions that they have for the people of Anguilla. Uh, uh, I, I, was, I was going to ask you about the campaign because I know Anguilla is relatively small in terms of population. So everybody almost knows everybody. Um, what was your experience like um, during the campaign? Did it get did it get to a point where um, it was a little you know, not not it became personality based more than issues based? Um, what well, how would you describe your experience during the campaign? As it relates to being uh, in a situation where everybody knows everybody, I was not one of those candidates. I think who knew me knew me, and who didn't didn't. And I'm actually still meeting persons who were inspired to vote for me, who I never met before. And, and people wouldn't imagine that was possible in Angola. But we mm. ran a campaign on hope and that message resonated. So what was difficult is because I launched my candidacy uh, in May 30th and I decided to be, sorry, in November on November 30th, I decided to be a candidate on November 14th. So I did not have any time. I was actually assisting the party with their policy development and I was staying in the background. They needed one more person. They kept asking me from earlier in the year and I kept saying no. And I decided to do so in the very last minute. And it was, it was a matter of starting on the back foot for myself as well as uh, another person who was also successful, who was the Minister of Home Affairs, Mr. Kenneth Hodge. So our campaign was hard work from the beginning to the very end, trying to get ourselves known, being on every radio talk show, walking the entire island, because that's the, like I said, uh, it was a matter of island-wide being the first time it's, it was happening. So we had to educate the entire populace on how to vote and go out there and beat the ground and introduce ourselves to almost every person. But the campaigns, there was a, a stark uh, contrast in the, the, the campaigns, where we had our campaign, which was very issued focus, and the previous administration's campaign, which was a dated style of politics that focused on the personalities and people's families, and it was not well received. I mean, the reality is, is if you are in, in government at a time where I can't pay my electricity bill, I can't afford to put food on the table for my family, I don't want to hear about somebody's family problems that would never matter if they are in power. So it took us 
really been in a position where we had to ignore a lot of things that we would have heard about ourselves and our loved ones and stick to the issues. I, I think there was a certain point in, in our campaign which, where I even made a speech about it, where I spoke about the importance of respecting the time of the electorate. If you take the time out to rearrange your day, to come to a meeting, to come to a political meeting or to tune in via Facebook or via radio to listen to me, the least I can do is say something worth your while as it relates to your life and where you will be going and where I believe that I can take you to. And that was the difference between the campaigns where we, we focus on what Angola can be. Our Angola reimagined ideas were not just things we were saying because we had time to say it. There were things that we sat down and we really believed that we can deliver to the people. And that's all we kept saying. That's all. You know, you look back on our Facebook, our campaign was about where we want to be as a people, what we think is possible for the people of Angola, and um, how we envision the private sector, the individual, the student away, the students are currently in school in Angola, you know, the person in the public service, how they can be a part of this dream. And, and that was the difference. That's how we ran our campaign. That's how we got known because the people were thirsty for representation and a representation that dared them to, to believe in what Angola can be and what Angola can offer. So the Angola Progressive Movement, which is the party that you, you run with, it's not, it's not that it's a new party, it's that it brought in fresh people. What? Um, so the Angola Progressive Movement was born out of what was the, the, the party that was in power from 2010 to 2015, which was the Angola United Movement. The leader of our party was a member of that party. At um, He was never elected, but he ran with them. We also mm -hmm. had um, Jerome Roberts, who unfortunately was not successful, but he ran with that he moved over to that party and he, when he won. And Mr. Hayden Hughes, who did not run with the party, but he was the parliamentary secretary at a point where Paul Sex were appointed and not elected. There was a change in constitution since then. So we had some, so three of our members had a, a previous aff affiliation with the Angola United Movement. And now when we had 11 members, all of, the, all of us were first time runners. Um, all seven of us were, no, eight of us were first-time runners. And the leader who took over the Angola United movement wanted a fresh perspective from what the ideals of the Angola United movement was. Not that we abandoned it, but we saw that it could have been a bit more, there could have been a, a, a fresh outlook to everything of the party, the design, the, the marketing, the messaging, and so he did what was bold and courageous, which 10 months before the election decided, after already launching the Angola United Movement, to uh, retire the, the, the Angola United Movement brand and start a new brand that, that was closely um, aligned with his ideas, which was the Angola Progressive Movement, because we realized that it took a people to get the United Movement, but we are asking a new generation to believe in what was possible. So progressive was very important. It also reflects in our manifesto and, and what we, we, we believe Angola can be. So there is some sort of historic affiliation with a previous party, but for all intentions, it is a new party. Because you're saying that eight out of the 11 candidates were new, were fresh faces. 
Yes. Yes. That is that is incredible. That that, that is incredible. And you got, and you did that in ten months. Ten months. Ten months. Rebranding. I guess you also with your with your experience in um reestablishing businesses, um and and upgrading and bringing them into the twenty first century will have played a, a huge role in that as well. Uh you you made you made an allusion more than once to your 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 affiliation to Dominica, and maybe in Dominica, I'm curious about your um, your connection to Dominica. Well, my mom is from Dominica, and so is my husband. So I guess I'm there twice. Uh, both of them are from Wesley. So the Marie comes from 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 Wesley. Well, he's from Wesley. Um, his the actual affiliation in in Wesley would be the Basils. Um, my mom. My mom is my mom and all my aunts who are now living in Angola and one is in New York. They are all from Wesley as well. So I would have I guess you're not pretty familiar with Wesley, but I would have spent a lot of summers there. Grew up in um spent time in Taya's house and um the Davises. Uh lots of time. I actually never met my husband when I was in Dominica, but um we met in Angola. And he just so happened to be from the same village that my mom is from. My, it's such a small village. My first thought was, you must be my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as we, we went to the family trees, we realized that there was no relation. But um, it was good to meet someone from a familiar place because I did spend the majority of my summers as a, as a young girl in, in Wesley and, and Stock Farm, where my uncle had um, a small... Uh, shop there, Andrew. He passed away a few years ago. And um, Dominica holds a very special place in my heart. My father moved to Dominica when he was around 21 as a young preacher. That's where he met, that's where he met my mom. And they eventually right. moved back to Angola. So, you know, we, and Dominica is home, my second home. I, I, I still visit there, so frequent there. I haven't gone back since being married. I've only been married just about a year now. And um, it's still part of who I am, you know? When I think of what is possible, I think of, of what, I've, what, I, what I would have seen there, especially as it relates to agriculture and fisheries and, and the development of such. And I know that um, Fidel Grant, who's also from the Wesley Village, he's also a close family member of myself, so I have a lot of ties. Um, he's he's a minister of blue, I guess, natural resources, whatever the equivalent would be in Dominica, um, okay. with the Labour Party. So he's a close family member, and we mm -hmm. just so happen to be doing the same things in our respective countries. So it, it's always home, and um, I go there all the time. So when I when I got the invitation to to have this interview with you. Um, at somebody from Dominica, it felt like something that was very natural and should have definitely happened. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to hear that. And, and yeah, and congratulations again. Uh, because, you know, I think the youth of Dominica uh, are really hungry for the type of inspiration that, that, you can, that you would be providing from your experience and from your story. So uh, I hope that uh, when we can travel again a little more freely, that, that you will be able to go there and share some of your story because Dominica needs that type of inspiration that you are that you're sharing. In fact, the whole Caribbean, I, I firmly believe 
that um, your generation, people of your age group, need to start to take the lead, to to step forward and, and raise their hands for service, because um, the folks that are there right now are not necessarily cutting it in terms of providing the type of life that that our our people our people need. And of course, I have to talk to you about. Um, what it means to be a woman, a young woman in politics, uh, in leadership. We know that it is, it, it, it's, a, it's an important decision for anyone to decide to go into politics. It's also just maybe twice as much of a consideration for a woman. So I want you to talk to directly to the women in my audience, the young ones and not so young ones who may be contemplating one way or another, um, offering themselves up for public service um, to, to, I don't know, motivate them, encourage them. I, if, if you think your experience was good enough that you would recommend it to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> but um, talk to them directly. I do think it's important as women to encourage other women, whether it is in politics or whatever field of life that you are, hesitating to enter to take that step and to launch out into the deep and and believe in what you can be because the reality is that where we are um as women people still even as progressive as they may want to think that they are they still try to put boxes on our on who we can be and try to limit what we can be but when i was younger i think one of the benefits i've always had is strong parents who always tell me a woman's place is wherever she wants to be so I, I never had the conditioning of thinking I had to be quiet or I had to be, I had to be small. The, the, what I want to encourage women to do is take up as much space as you can. We, we have been conditioned um, culturally and to different institutions to be small, to, to, to try to disappear and to take up as little space as possible. But the, when you have a, a dream or a goal, wherever that dream takes you, and the, and the rooms it will take you in. Don't be afraid to use your voice to, to make changes, to demand respect, and to call out in uh, situations of injustice. Because when we do that, we are breaking a, a, a mold for our next woman to, to benefit from in time to come. Because what I am particularly um, mindful of is this is a step that we are taking, and there are women who, are, who would love to achieve this in their futures. So it's important to me to leave the mic on or to leave the door open or to make room at, at the table for other women to be represented. Because what we sometimes do as, as just marginalized group, groups is to think that we can speak on behalf of other persons. But the, the, the reality is that we don't have, we don't have sh all of us don't share the same experiences. So there's room for different types of women. There's room for women who would have grown up in our similar circumstances are women who would have had different socioeconomic standards than, than we've had, different educational opportunities than we've had. We need to ensure that we make room for them at the table to ensure that every, every voice is, is heard and every need is amplified. So many times when I go on interviews, persons ask me about, what, do I see myself being the first female premier of Anguilla and what would that look like for me? And I, I always say that when we do all of these first, what we must make sure is that the women on the top are not being celebrated at the cost of the women on the other side of the spectrum because 
what some people like, tend to do, even here in our debates, what the incumbents would say is that there was no need for um, gender equality because there are lots of women achieving key positions in Angola. But you can't say those 20 women negate the plight of the 200 on the other side. So we have to ensure that we broaden our scope and we ensure that every person under our purview has the opportunity to grow, that we, we, we pass the mantle and we know when it's time to, 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 to step aside and make room for other persons in the future because sometimes it can become so fun being the only or the first woman to do something that we become a bit power hungry and we enforce these neg negative stereotypes. We need to make room and we also need to encourage uh, our fellow women across the board to be re-educated and, and learn how to utilize their voices to the fullest of their potential. So whenever I work with um, young ladies, I always tell them, I remember a time in my life where I'm very tall, I'm six feet tall, and I also have a, a deeper voice. And I wanted to be shorter and I wanted my voice to be lighter. But it doesn't change my it doesn't change what I bring to the table. It doesn't change who I am. And once you start to live in your truth, you know, who you are physically, what you sound like, what you look like, and you know, no one can shame you for what you are. So there were certain persons doing our campaign talking about how deep my voice is. And I said, Well, that's what it is, but the message is also important. Standing in your truth and ensuring that you are creating a space for everybody that's under you. It's really important for me to impress that message on any other person. Because there are persons who, maybe, maybe in your audience, who want to achieve more. But there may also be persons in your audience who can also leave a door open or pull another young person along, young woman or man. And we want to encourage that as well, the continuity. We don't want to be... The, the guards of success. We don't want to be the guards of power. We need to know when to hold on and when to let go and ensure that young persons or disabled persons or young men or young women have equal opportunities to take up space in their respective communities. Do you have any particular um, issues or, or, or programs that you're hoping to implement um, specifically for the women of of Anguilla or the women of the Caribbean? So one of the things that we are doing as we, as, uh, as we look to diversify our economy is ensure that we have an, an agenda equality portion of it. Because when we look at things like fishing or agriculture, these are predominantly male-dominated industries. So we want to have special drives for women to participate in these industries and actually encourage them to have economic stability from these industries. And like I said, everything might not take you to the ocean or take you to the land, but how you can position yourself to benefit, whether it is through marketing, through administrative processes, how can you get involved? So we don't just empower, you know, I don't want to make it sound like we want to empower a bunch of men and leave the women behind, but women and young persons are very important to us because that's exactly the demographic that I fall into as well, as a young person. And as Did I lose you? Yeah, I just, again, got a call. Uh, it's important for us to, to make room for women and that's in that aspect. But um, Deanne Kentish, who I referenced earlier in this interview, she is a Minister of Social Development. So she's also looking at gender equality programs 
and how to ensure that we have quality. Because what we don't have in Angola are the markers, social markers of gender equality. We do have examples where we see the inequalities, but we don't have something to formally say, hey, well, these inequalities exist here. And part of that is also teaching persons across the community that gender equality is important for both men and women. They sometimes think that it's only about women and protecting women, but we realize even in our marijuana laws, as we move to decriminalization, that our young men are disproportionately affected. So we're trying to ensure that we have an equal uh, approach to the plights of both our, young, our men and women, but especially as it relates to econ economic diversification, we are looking at our women in particular. Well, that's, that's, that's great. Uh, you said Diane is the other um, female candidate who won her seat. She unseated the prime minister, you said, right? Yes, she did, the premier. She, she premiered and I said prime minister. No, um, I, I know a number of folks will have my, my head if I didn't ask you about Kenny. I don't know if, how familiar you are, if you're prepared to say anything about him, but Kenny is a young Dominican who was working in Anguilla in a hotel who met his untimely death um, at the hands of an American tourist. And uh, there's, there's a movement that's trying to ensure that there is justice uh, um, mm -hmm. for for Kenyan someone is held accountable. I do. Uh, you must be familiar with it because it would have been yeah, definitely definitely familiar with it. It's a very unfortunate situation. Is there anything that you can say or, or in that in regard to that um, situation? Well, the government at the time part, um, completely removed themselves from it. Um, which I, I'm not too sure if that was the best move to make. Although there is the legal aspect, which is removed from the government, there are other ways you can help. So one of the ways we want to do, we want to ensure that Kenny's legacy lives on is to improve the occupational health and safety standards of uh, tourism workers. It is our primary industry, and Kenny could have been anybody. It's unfortunate that it happened to him and his family, but it could have been anybody. And while the government could not directly get involved in the justice system, they could have ensured that there were moves made to ensure that no other person working in Angola in that particular industry can leave home in, in, in their good, with, you know, with their lives intact, and at the end of the day, be threatened to the point where death is the ultimate um, thing they face. So we want to ensure that hotel workers are, are uh, protected from here on out. Because the AG Chambers, is, uh, they're dealing with the case, as you may have heard, if you have been following, the young man, uh, sorry, the, the man who was accused, Scott Hapgood, he did not return and he is refusing to return to Angola. So the case cannot go on. And we're in this position where persons in the hospitality industry are saying to themselves, well, what does this mean for me? If this happens to me, would, you know, would a person be allowed to leave and never come back and there's no justice and they get to live their full lives while I, I am, my life is cut short? So these are things that we have to face and we have to allay these fears in, in the ways that we can. Like I said earlier, the justice system and the, and the government system are two different systems. So we can't go in there and demand for his return, but we can 
try to protect other persons and the, the other Dominicans who are working in the in the in the um, hospitality industry who felt particularly affected because not only would they have known him, they might have grown up with him, but just to know that it was one of them, it it it, it touched them in a different way. And um, coming from having the the, the the peculiar standard that I have, where I am half Dominican, half Angolan. I understand the, the plight that the entire community faced because there was a, a, a general feeling that if it wasn't an Anglian, it would have been dealt with differently. And, and you know what the truth is, it might have been because they would have had to face a larger family. Like you know in Angola, like you said earlier, everybody knows everybody. So they would have to face a larger force of persons in their face. But the general feeling of hotel workers is that we've seen what is possible. And so we need our government to step in and ensure that this is nev never happens again under their watch. And that's what we are hoping to do. But I mean, w from a government point of view, especially since you are an overseas territory of Britain, can your government get the British government involved um, to try to do at least request an extradition or something? Um, if, if you, you don't know if there's any any uh, movement in that direction? So my understanding of the system, and you will forgive me because it's um, just about a week old in the system, is that, <laughs> is that the AG chambers will have to make that move. What the government can do is make the request or uh, more or less encourage the chambers to do so. But if the separations of power is, powers is, is highly enforced by the British. So we definitely can't get involved in it. But in terms of writing a letter and asking for assistance, I'm guessing that it is possible. But my understanding is that that must be done through the AG chambers and not necessarily through a minister. And I would stand corrected if, if, if my assertion is incorrect. Yeah, I just wanted to raise it, bring it to your radar. Maybe um, that's a discussion you can have with the appropriate Folks and and maybe when next time we have a, a, a more you know um, detailed answer. We I, I had on my cards to ask you um, and we and we are coming to the end of our conversation. I had on my cards to ask you what was the most surprising thing that you've learned since you've been elected and and you well you sort of said that you from your your that coming into office that there was only two weeks mm -hmm. of, of funds left <laughs> in, the, in the coffers of the country. Um, so I'm not going to be presumptuous and assume that that's the most surprising thing that you have discovered um, that you can talk about because it's just two conditions. So I'm going to ask the question anyway. Um, what do you know now that you did not know <laughs> um, before you won your, you became part of the government? I think one of the things I know now is where we could be as a country is 100%. I think I had the, I had the, uh, the thought, but I wasn't 100% sure. But where we are as a country is 100% due to lack of political will, which surprised me a little bit. Because, I, like I said earlier, my role with the APM at the beginning was a policy advocate that was assisting with it creation of the manifesto and we had all these great ideas and some of them we even ducked and said you know this would be a little impossible but we can just kind of have it in the back of our minds if anything 
And on my first few days in office doing general tours and sharing the manifestos with different departments, they were so excited to hear that this is where we wanted to go. And they let me know that within a year or two, so long as everything goes well, the majority of the things we want can be achieved so long as there is political will because some of the things we have been started and then abandoned, uh, they would have been interest on a departmental level, but not on a ministerial level. So they would not have been pushed to ex-schools for decision-making and they were just left to the wayside. And that wasn't, that was exciting because apart from coming in and hearing there's no money there, you realize also the ideas that you wanted to push, all of them don't require money. All of them, most of them just require a push and belief and support on a ministerial level. And I, I feel confident. I know that my departments under me are confident that I'm young, I'm energetic, I have time, and I'm excited about this, so I will not let them down. And I did promise to be the voice of, of a lot of marginalized persons in Angola so we can get the job done. But I was surprised to see that my entire manifesto that was sat in front of me was more or less shelved on some department um, you know, just had to dust it off a little bit and bring it to Exco. So I'm excited about that. Um, apart from finding out that we are more or less bankrupt, you know, nothing much. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it, it's good that you, you to come in with ideas. Um, I know everybody says, well, until you get there, you don't know how difficult or how complicated it is. But it, it's, it's exciting to hear you say that, no, now that you've seen what's possible, you're even more excited and optimistic that you can implement yes. a lot of those ideas. So, so we're pretty much at the end of our conversation, a uh, conversation that I enjoyed very much. Uh, I would now give you the chance to talk about anything that you may have wanted to talk about that I did not ask you. Uh, is there anybody that you may want to thank um, for, for, for your achievement? Um, for helping you and assisting you. This is the time that you do that. And um, so, so uh, you, you can take the next few minutes to do that. Well, I, I mean, the majority of the persons that I, I, I want to thank have done so already, but I want to thank mm -hmm. again the Angolian public for believing in the message that we shared and believing in me in particular to get me over the line. It was a humbling experience and not just the night of waiting to hear the numbers called with the entire experience. You know, you hear about horror stories about being chased out of yards and persons ignoring you, but everybody was welcoming, even the persons who may say, you know, I won't vote for you, but if you are elected, here are some things that I want you to consider. Those persons are also important too, because now I also have, um, I am accountable to them. But one thing I did not get an opportunity to talk about is my faith. Uh, it was, and a journey that reaffirmed my faith in God because I do believe that myself and my entire team were appointed for such a time as this. I do believe that, you know, when you be, actually, when you speak to most of us, we would have had a unique calling and a unique um, moment of revelation of realizing that we really, everything else in our lives pointed us to this direction. In fact, um, one of my colleagues, Kyle Hodge, he was saying like he needed a sign that he really needed to be there. And the numbers he won by, he got 3,557 votes. That's actually the number of his business, the phone number of his business. 
And we just had moments of just seeing God's work and God's hand in this process. And we, we really believe that in spite of the challenges we face, there is a certain peace and a certain calm that if we were brought here for this, we won't fail now. So while we are out here planning and we're we hoping to do our best, there is a, a calm assurance that God is in the midst. And, you know, there are persons who may not be religious, and I can understand that, that and I respect that. But for the persons who are, we just, you know, encourage them to not give up on, on, on God and, and the journey that you are taking in life because the purpose of your purpose, actually, is to give back to people and to help people. And I think this is one of the most honoring ways to use my voice you know the deep voice that i was running away from in my youth it's important now um and you know the opinions and all the opinions and all the great thoughts i've had it's important now because i get an opportunity not just to use it but to i think usher the people of angola out of a time which which will be very hard but there is a there is a calm assurance that we will get through so i i just want to encourage persons to to believe in god because he won't give up on you Okay, thank you. I, and I personally want to tell you thank you so much for agreeing to come and be my guest on this particular interview. I can just imagine how hectic your schedule is, so I am I'm convinced of that and I'm very appreciative. And I wish you all the best on a personal level. I wish your family the best. Um, I wish your party and the people of Angola all the best. And of course, I would like you to come back when you are a little more settled and we can probably talk about specific um, initiatives specific plans that that are happening so so thank you so much and we are also proud of you for for raising your hands and doing what it takes to get across the finish line congratulations again and thank you thank you anthony i apologize first of all apologizing for the, the faulty visuals now i'm apologizing for no visuals but <laughs> <laughs> no that's fine because our listeners know that we when we talk to folks who are in the caribbean um sometimes we have a lot of challenges in terms of yeah. the technology and so on so that's fine totally understand. thank you for having me it was a great conversation and i do look forward to returning again in the future thank you and all the best and your last thing i would say to you is that um you said that one of the reasons why your party won is for lack of communication with the people and involvement of the people in what was going on so in passing i would like to tell you to remind yourself and the other folks in government with you to always yes. remember how important that is yes thank you okay and thank you so much good night have a nice evening you too thank you